Jesus is so frustrating sometimes. Sometimes it's just like, Jesus, you're being really unhelpful. In our Bible story this morning, I actually find Jesus unhelpful. One of the things that we can skim over really fast when we're looking at this Bible passage is that Jesus is asked a question or a statement is made to him. Hey, uh, Jesus, can you talk to my brother about dividing the inheritance? Sometimes, I don't know if I had noticed this before, but you get to the end of the passage and even read on, Jesus never answers the question. Jesus never answers and says to the guy, well, this is what you should say to your brother, or this is how the inheritance should work out. Thinking, well, Jesus, you think you could be a little helpful here. Give a little bit of guidance. Answer the question. Jesus doesn't answer the question. He goes one level above the question. We don't know anything about what's going on in the life of this man who's asked the question or made the statement. We don't know if he's the older brother in a family or the younger brother, which actually would give us a great help in kind of his position regarding his inheritance. In the Jewish world, a rabbi or a teacher who Jesus is would oftentimes find himself trying to help people apply the law to their specific circumstance. So in Jewish law, if you read the book of Leviticus and Exodus, there's some pretty specific instructions regarding inheritance. Who receives it? And so depending on the age of this brother, if he was the older brother or the younger brother, would really determine how much of the inheritance he's going to receive. If he's the older brother, he's supposed to receive twice as much as the younger brother because the older brother is supposed to care for the aging parents. So sometimes the younger brother ended up not with much at all. So sometimes they'd come to the Jewish rabbi and they'd say, hey, can you help us out here a little bit? Help us apply this law in this specific circumstance. So actually the question is reasonable. The situation is real life. And this isn't real life just 2,000 years ago. This is real life today. I mean, how many of us or how many people are dealing with this specific situation? What do we do about the inheritance? I was having a conversation one time with an attorney and a, and a funeral home director, and we were sitting at the funeral home, and the funeral home director says to the attorney, says, oh, man, I only have to deal with grief. And he says to the attorney, yeah, I don't want your job at all. You have to deal with grief and greed at the exact same time. And then the attorney said something very enlightening. The attorney said, I've actually never dealt with grief. People only come with greed. Interesting situation. That's real life today. It's real life all of the time, all over the place. So Jesus is confronted with this specific issue. What do you do? Well, Jesus actually points to something higher and says to the man, hey, 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 you need to be on guard. You need to watch for something. Look out for this danger. Well, what is this danger that Jesus is encouraging the man to watch out for? Luke chapter 12, he says to him in verse 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. In other words, Jesus says, hey, watch out for greed. Your version might say greed, greed and covetous, basically the same word that means an internal desire for more. Jesus is saying, hey, watch out for the desire to have more. 
well, we don't even know if this brother was wanting more than his fair share. He may have just been wanting his fair share. It doesn't matter. Jesus says, you got to be on guard against greed. Now, if you're anything like me, when you put something together, you receive the instructions with it, what do you normally do with the instructions? Shh, we don't need instructions. When I was in college and I was a resident assistant in the dorm, um, I don't know how this happened. I'm imagining it was some weird OSHA regulation. But uh, on the windows, they had this, this thing about taking the screens off of the windows. You know, danger if you take the screens off the windows. Kind of like, well, obviously. I don't think I ever read the danger thing on the screens until one evening, there's a knock at the door. I was in a meeting with the other RAs, and a guy standing at the door, and he says, hey, there's guys throwing snowballs at our window. So I'm like, hey, I'll walk up there and take care of it. So I walk up there. As I'm walking down the hallway, walking down the hallway, I see snowballs coming into the hallway through the dorm room. And I'm thinking to myself, well, how, how does this work? How are the snowballs getting in? I walk into the dorm room of the individual and find out he's taken the screen off. Well, why did you take the screen off? Well, I wanted to yell at him. Couldn't you have yelled through the screen? I never really thought, what's the point of a danger sign on the screen? It's obvious. You leave the screen on. And so you actually never read the label. Why? Because you don't think you're ever going to actually have to deal with a scenario where a screen might be dangerous. We don't read the dangerous labels because we don't think they apply to us. The same is true when we hear Jesus say something like this. When he says, hey, watch out for covetousness. Most of us are like, yeah, don't have to worry about that. That's for the Wall Street people. That, that's for the hedge fund managers. They're the greedy ones that we need to get more out of. Most of us don't take this warning from Jesus very seriously because most of us are like, well, I'm not very greedy. And we say that to ourselves, why? Because there's people that have more than us and there's people that what? Have less than us. So you can always find someone who's spending unwisely more than you and you can always find someone who has less than you. So you can always justify the position that you find yourself in. So very rarely do we hear, heed the warning of Jesus when it comes to greed or coveting because we don't think it applies. Greed or covetousness has kind of become the unregulated sin in the church. It's become the unregulated sin because it's really hard to define. I mean, Churches spend a lot of money and a lot of time spelling out specific rules about a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. Where you can go, how much you can uh, spend when you go. They spend out, spell out rules about sexuality, when you can get married, where you can get married. Spell out rules about number of children. They've, churches spelled out a lot of rules throughout the history of its age. Rarely, if ever, at least that I'm aware of, do you find any rules from the church about greed or coveting? It's probably one of the only Ten Commandments that what? You don't spell it out, see spelled out in further detail. All of the other detail, all the other commandments, you get details. So for example, 
keep the Lord's Day for it is holy. Throughout history, churches then have made some specific rules like, well, you can feed the animals on the Lord's Day, do your chores, but you can't do any crop production on the Lord's Day because that would be for profit. Or you can go out to lunch, but you can't shop. Okay, that's how some churches spell it out. They're, they're giving specific rules of how to apply this command. Wait, we don't do that with coveting. Why? It's so hard to define. It's because it's the invisible sin. Greed and coveting is an internal desire. Now, it shows itself in external ways. It shows itself through what? The purchase or the pursuit of stuff. More money or more things. But greed or coveting in and of itself is an internal desire that's hard to identify. The reason that it's hard to identify is there's nothing wrong with material goods. There's nothing wrong with stuff in and of itself. We can find numerous people in the Bible. Abram, for example, he was probably a multimillionaire. He had a lot of stuff. He had tons of livestock. We have other characters in the Old Testament who had a lot of stuff. There's nothing wrong with stuff. So just because someone has stuff doesn't mean they're greedy. But it also doesn't mean that they're not greedy. It's an internal desire, hard to identify. You could call greed or coveting the silent killer. The reason it's the silent killer is not only does greed drive you to do things, but it blinds you to what's driving you. Greed drives you to do something, but it also blinds you to the reason for what you're doing. Does that make sense? So for example, sometimes you'll go out and buy something because you really think you need it, right? Oh, I'm going to use this tool. I, I, honey, I really need this tool. It, it's going to help a lot, move things along quickly. And, you know, so-and-so's got this tool. So, so you end up buying the tool. What has greed done? Greed has used the justification of a current project and also thrown in a little justification of, well, your neighbor has one. So when it comes along to, well, you didn't really need it, who do you blame? You blame your neighbor. Well, why did they have one? They didn't need one. See, greed blinds you to greed. It causes you to do things and to want things at the same time blinding you to what's causing it. Greed is nasty. It's the 10th commandment and the 10 commandments, if you're familiar with that. And some people have, theologians have written some interesting works talking about how there's really only nine commandments. Because to break the other nine, you automatically break the 10th. Because at the heart of any other commandment you break is an internal desire of wanting something that you shouldn't have. Greed and coveting, it's dangerous. This morning, we just have a simple word for, from Jesus. Be on guard. Be watchful for it. Because I know how these sermons work. I know how everybody's sitting out there. Some of you are like this. Oh boy, here we go again. More money talk. I'm not a greedy, pastor. So what do we do when it comes to money talk? It doesn't apply to us. No, 
how am I greedy? I mean, go talk to the ones that have everything. Not, not me. Well, this morning, we're not talking at all about if you're greedy or not greedy. We're just taking Jesus at his word that says, be on guard. It's a warning. Let's not jump ahead of ourselves. Let's first ask ourselves this. Am I on guard against greed? Am I watching to make sure that greed doesn't even creep in? Am I looking for the danger signs? Greed deceives and it convinces us that I need this in order to get that. So, for example, greed says, if I have more money, I'll just be secure. Greed says, if I just get this person to like me, I'll feel good. I'll be secure. Greed uses external things to try and solve an internal need. And it gives us an internal desire for external things. Well, how do I know if I'm struggling with greed? How do I know if I'm struggling with greed? Maybe a question each of us can ask ourselves is this. Do I find myself thanking God for what I have more often than I find myself wanting more? Do I find myself thanking God for what I have more often than I do wanting more? Is there anything wrong with wanting something nice and saving money for it? Absolutely not. But does that want drive me? And does it preoccupy my time versus am I giving God thanks for what I have? This last week, have you thanked God more or have you desired more? Jesus encouraging us and challenging us to be on guard against greed. So what do we do? If we want to be on guard against greed, how, how do I do that? Practically speaking, how do I guard against greed? This morning, I want to give us one uh, practical action step that we can take to be on guard against greed. And the practical action step flows from the reason greed is a problem. So first, I want to look at that. Look in your Bible with me at Luke chapter 12, verse 15. How many of you have the word for circled in verse 15? Wow. We preached on this about six months ago, and I asked you to circle the word for. That means many of you did not listen during that time. I'm going to give you a second chance. If you have your pen with you in a Bible, and you have Luke chapter 12, verse 15, circle the word for. Because for is so important, it's the transition point. Why doesn't God want us to be greedy? Why doesn't God want us to want more and more stuff? We get the reason for it right here. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Greed is so dangerous because it leads us down a pathway that says this, I have life when I have this. It leads us down to a path that says this, life consists of the here and now. I can have life without God. That's why greed is so dangerous. Greed is so dangerous because it tells us I can have life without God. So therefore, if I'm going to fight greed, if I'm going to push back against it and actually pursue something rather than just have a rule that says don't be greedy, what God is actually saying here is this, pursue contentment. Because contentment is satisfaction in God. And if I have satisfaction in God, then what? 
then I'm not looking for life in an abundance of things. So to fight against greed or to guard against greed, I believe we need to practice the presence of God. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Turn with me there, if you would, please. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. I'm sorry, not verse 8. Verse 5. Hebrews 13, verse 5. I turn to other portions of Scripture because, again, I want us to see the unity of God's Word, that this is throughout the Scriptures. Hebrews 13, 5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So here, we've got the reverse of what we had in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 was saying, don't be greedy because this, because of, it, it, it says you can have life without God. And here it tells us now, okay, be content. Notice the four again. The, the reason here is what? Why can we be content? Because God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, it's saying you can be content because you have God with you. So if I want to pursue contentment, what do I got to do? I have to practice the presence of God. There's a book that's out that's it's really old. Um, it's actually a newer book, but it's really old material called The Practicing the Presence of God. It's written by a man named Brother Lawrence. And uh, a, a guy who basically pulled away from community and kind of lived as a monk, you would say, but wrote some conversations or letters on, on how to practice the presence of God, recognizing that we can't be content if I'm not going to what? recognize the presence of God because contentment comes through the promise that God is with us or that God is present with us. So I want to talk to us today for just a moment. How can I practice the presence of God? I want to encourage you today to do the following. Become really good at one-liners. Become really good at one-liners. Most of us think when we think one-liners, we think of someone who's got kind of a quick wit to themselves. They're able to respond quickly. I believe as followers of Jesus, we need to be really quick with one-liners to God because it reminds us of the presence of God with us. So this next week, I want to encourage you, make a one-liner every day throughout the day. So for example, you might be just walking into a meeting or a conversation. Very simply, God give me words to say. That's it. That's it. You don't need to say anything else. You don't need to recite a bunch of scripture. You don't need to stop for 45 seconds and pray. You just need to, as you're walking in, God, give me words to say. What am I doing? I'm recognizing that what? God is with me and I'm asking him to empower me. As you're about to walk into a store, maybe you very simply say, God, remind me of all my blessings. Kind of weird to say as you're going in to buy something, but maybe just having that mindset will keep you content rather than pursuing more. One-liners all of the time. You're about to teach a class at school. What do you say? God, give me the words to say to the kids. That's it. You're in the middle of a really difficult situation. It does not take very long under your breath to say, God, give me patience right now. That's it. One-liners continually throughout each and every day. It reminds us of the presence of God. It reminds us of our dependence upon God. You've got to become a master of one-liners to practice the presence of God. The Scripture tells us to pray continuously without ceasing. 
There's only one way to do that and still be an effective employee. That's to become a master of the one-liners throughout the day. Maybe even at supper at night, you're just, God, give me a word to say to my kid to encourage them. Simple. One-liners throughout the day, every day. This next week, if you want to guard against greed, guess what you need to do? You need to practice the presence of God. Because the presence of God will give you satisfaction. And when you have satisfaction, guess what? You're not going to want more. Because you're fully satisfied with who God is. This next week, we can be on guard against greed by practicing the presence of God. We've got a couple of questions coming in, so we're going to talk about those for just a moment. If you just throw them up on the screen, not sure if you can read them. Would you say that insecurity, i.e., and friendships financially health-wise leads to greed? Great question. Absolutely. Insecurity is actually at, at the base that can fuel the desire for more stuff. But guess what is at the base of solving our insecurity? The exact same thing we just talked about. The only way to overcome insecurity is to realize and to practice that your security comes through God. So here's what normally happens in a lot of our lives. And this is, this is for all of us, right? A lot of us struggle with insecurity. So what happens is we're not secure in and of ourselves. So then what do we do? We've got to do things to get other people to like us or feel like we fit in, which fuels the desire then to get something that will accomplish that. The only way to overcome that insecurity is to find a new security. You can't overcome insecurity by saying, don't be insecure, don't be insecure. You can only overcome it by what? Finding security. And that security, according to Scripture, for us comes from God Himself. Our identity knowing that what? I'm loved by God. At the daycare that I work at, Compassion Child Care, I was having a staff meeting one time, and, and the staff were working with children from families that are struggling all the time. And, and one of the staff members asked, said, man, how do we overcome all of this discouragement that we're not really accomplishing anything? And I don't know where this came from, but I said it, and the staff said it was helpful, so I'll share it with you. I said, you know, the reason that I, the way that I battle discouragement as a pastor, and there's a lot of it because I have to preach to you every week, right? And then everybody leaves here and doesn't practice what you say. Okay, that's not a lot of motivation to get back up the next Sunday. So there is constant discouragement. So what I've had to teach myself and learn from God's Word is this, is there's one voice that matters, God's, when He says, you've done what I've asked. So I fight discouragement by having one voice that's bigger than all other voices. And we need that in our lives. How big is God's voice in your life today? Is it it the voice that matters when He says, I love you? Because that gives you your security. And when you have that security, now you're in a position where you're not going to fuel a desire for more and more. I hope that's that's helpful. Next question here says, Is it biblical to save for retirement? Luke 12, 19 through 20. So Luke 12, 19 through 20, let's look at that real quick here. That's in the parable that Jesus says here. He says, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So Jesus is giving the story of a farmer who is obviously saving a lot. 
Now, saving is not a bad thing. In the book of Proverbs, it talks about that, saving for a rainy day. There's a big difference, though, between saving for a rainy day, when you know you're not going to have income to cover it, and saving what? So you can relax, drink, and be merry. So if you view retirement, now this is not popular, so hold the tomatoes. If you view retirement as your opportunity to relax and be merry, your saving for retirement is unbiblical. Because there is no retirement in the Bible. Retirement's not a bad thing at all. There's nothing wrong with retirement at all. But if I use retirement for myself, guess what? I'm just robbing God of all of the glory because I'm basically saying this. These are my best years. I've got to take advantage while I have it. So therefore, I have to live to myself. You know what that's doing? That's saying the following about God's promise of an everlasting kingdom, which is the best years. The best years are not your retirement years at all. The best years are our eternal years in the kingdom of God. So if you're saving up for retirement so you can have a bunch of free time to pour into your grandchildren, volunteer at local places, and build up the kingdom of God, guess what? Save, save, save. But if you're saving up so you can travel all around the world and live out your best years and enjoy what you haven't for the previous 60 years, I contend God's word would say, no, no, no. Because your true enjoyment is going to come in the kingdom of God. So there's nothing wrong with saving at all for retirement. The question is, how do we view retirement? Okay, now hopefully I still have a job after that. Verse 19 through 21, is it biblical to save? That I think we just covered that mainly. Um, there, there's nothing wrong with saving. I want to emphasize that. There's nothing wrong with having, there's this weird balance we find in Scripture. Next week, we're going to be reading on in Luke 12, where Jesus says, sell everything. But I, I, that's what Jesus said. I mean, you can argue all day long. Here's what one difference is that I do have to point out to be faithful to the Bible. There's no conversation in the New Testament about saving. All of the recommendation for saving comes from the Old Testament. Now, I'm not saying that it's, it's void, but I am saying that there is a different era that was ushered in under the person of Jesus Christ. And the reason there's no talk about saving in the New Testament is what? They expect Jesus to come. So they're living with this expectation that Jesus is going to come today. So there's no focus on, on 40 years from now. They don't think there's going to be a 40 years from now. They're living in the here and the now. So I just have to share that with you so we make sure we keep that perspective. There's nothing wrong with saving, but a lot of it comes down to our motivation. And why are we doing what we're doing? Those are, those are great questions. Thanks for, for asking and continue to continue to ask so that we can wrestle with these things. How does it apply to our lives? When we talk about this issue of money and greed, a lot of it comes down to the issue of perspective. What's my perspective of what I have? I listen to a lot of NPR, and one of my favorite stories from NPR, and I've maybe shared this before, is NPR had a rabbi on. And the rabbi was sharing about uh, some instruction that he gave someone that came forward looking for some help because the person came forward and said, Rabbi, we're living with nine people, and it's disgusting. 
what can I do? Because this situation is unbearable. The rabbi shared the advice that he gave was this. Take your goat into the room with you. The man was confused, obviously, when he received that advice from the rabbi. They're living in a one-room place with nine people, and the rabbi says, take your goat into the room with you. A week later, the man returned, looking more distraught than before, and said to the rabbi, hey, we can't stand it. This goat is filthy. Then the rabbi said, hey, go home and let the goat out. Come back in a week. The man returned a week later, and he says, Life is beautiful. We enjoy every minute of it now that there's no goat and only nine of us. It's really all about perspective. All of us think like, ah, we don't have that much. All depends on who you're comparing to. It all comes down to perspective. The perspective for the here and now, but the ultimate perspective that it comes down to is the eternal perspective. Do we have the perspective that says life does not consist of everything here, but life consists of knowing and enjoying enjoying God eternally. Life consists of knowing and enjoying God eternally. If you have not come to the point where you enjoy God, I don't think you've lived yet. Because that's life. We find life when we know and enjoy God. And we do that for eternity. This morning, Jesus has probably frustrated us. Or your pastor has probably frustrated you. But Jesus has frustrated me this last week by not answering the question. And just saying, hey, be on guard against greed. So this morning, Jesus' word for us is pretty simple. Be on guard. Watch out. And the best way that we can be on guard is by practicing the presence of God, becoming a master of the one-liners. This next week, what would happen if we become a master of the one-liners and practice the presence of God? Our desires for more would go down. Our security in Christ would go up. Jesus didn't give a straight answer, but what he did give was a truth that can help us answer the difficult questions. Let us pray. Gracious God, why don't you answer the question, God? Help us. Help us take these truths that Jesus gives to us and apply them in our daily lives. Right now, God, I ask that you would burn in each of our hearts this morning a passion for contentment. God, give each of us a desire to walk in relationship with you. I pray for anyone this morning that's struggling with insecurity. God, I ask right now that you'd make yourself known to them in your word. God, secure them in your love. Make your voice big in our lives. So God, we ask that you'd give us wisdom as we deal with these difficult issues of saving and spending. Lord, above it all, we ask that you would be with us, that you would be our security, you would be our life. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the eternal promises. In Jesus' name, amen.